So we are making our way through the sacred season of Lent, in many ways the holiest season of the year. During this sacred season, we are looking at some of the ordinary, everyday things that are part of the Lenten story that Jesus invites us to pay attention to and to see them as holy. And our hope is, is that by paying attention to those things, that we'll be able to recognize some of the things in our lives that point us towards the holy and the divine. We'll be able to open our hearts and open our eyes to be able to, to see all that is around us. Tish Harrison Warren has written a wonderful book simply entitled Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's about slowing down. It's about paying the best kind of attention, connecting those moments of ordinary with the extraordinary moments of grace. Things like making the bed, brushing our teeth, sitting in traffic, arguing with our spouse, having a cup of tea. My favorite line from this book is, everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to wash the dishes. I don't know if that sounds like your house, but it certainly sounds like mine. But she reminds us that there are some of the biggest gifts in life come in the smallest of package, sometimes just in a plain, ordinary cardboard box. But the Christian life is all about unpacking these gifts from God these gifts that God has placed all around us. In many ways, that that is the holy work of Lent. Now, before we begin today, I want to pause for just a moment to share with you some exciting news. Next Sunday, we'll be offering in-person worship services with the number of vaccines on the rise and the, the spread of the virus on decline. While we know we're not out of the woods yet, we 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 recognize that precautions still need to be taken, but we are ready to once again be worshiping in person. And so next Sunday, which is Palm Sunday, we'll be holding services in our sanctuary at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Space will be limited. Reservations will be required. We'll be maintaining other protocols as well, like social distancing and wearing masks. But the good news is that we'll all be worshiping together. And then the following Sunday, which is April 4th, is, is Easter. We'll be celebrating Easter together, and what a resurrection day that will be. In order to accommodate all who would want to come on that day, we'll be offering six services uh, at 7 a.m. out in the courtyard. We'll have a 9 a.m. here in the sanctuary. At 9.30 uh, will be a simple worship service with Shannon Moore. Uh, 10 o'clock outside, 11 o'clock back in the sanctuary. And again, we'll be doing an Easter evening service right here in the sanctuary at 6 p.m. We're having all of these options in part because, because this year more than ever, this year more than ever, we need a resurrection story. And so again, I want to direct you to our website at universitychristian.org. And we're starting tomorrow. You'll be able to make your reservations, not just for Palm Sunday, but also for Easter and there you can also find information about children's worship and some other offerings for youth that we'll have available. And please know, of course, that, that, that if you're not comfortable yet being back in the sanctuary around large groups of folks, that's okay. That I promise you that we will continue to offer the same online digital worship services that we've been offering that you have grown so appreciative of in the last few months. So with all that in mind. Let's get back to the task at hand today. 
Now, as you know, we have essentially four accounts, four stories, four accounts of the life of Jesus. Each tells the story of his ministry, and all of them, all of them move quite rapidly through his ministry until they get to the last hours of his life. If this were a movie scene, scenes would move rather quickly right up until, right up until this moment when they slow down and give a whole lot more detail. It's almost in some ways like the Gospels are introductions to the passage, the passages about his death and his resurrection. So he arrived in Jerusalem just as the festival of the Passover was about to begin. It was a celebration of Israel's defining story of how God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. And the text you're about to hear is Luke's version of the story, the story of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Oftentimes what we do is we sort of combine these different versions of the story. We sort of amalgamate the four different Gospels into one big version. We do that not only with Holy Week, but we do it too with Christmas as well. But each Gospel Each gospel writer tells the story in a slightly different way, lifts up different specific details. As you listen today, I want you to pay attention to the details that Luke points out as being important to this big story. Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 29 to 40. Here begins the reading. When Jesus had come near Bethphage and Bethany, At the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, Its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had been saying. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there's an old phrase, maybe an idiom. It goes like this, the devil is in the details. The devil's in the details. I wonder what that might mean to you. Typically, it means something like like the small details of something make it difficult or challenging. The small small things oftentimes are the ones that that trip us up. The small things are the, the, the ones that are often overlooked and can cause a serious problem later on. It means that if you ignore the small details, more than likely you are in for big trouble later on. 
Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like life is made from details. The phones that keep ringing, the email that needs to be returned, their schedules and calendars and logistics. And don't get me started on usernames and passwords. Uh, how is it? How is it that I can remember my childhood phone number, but I still can't remember the password that I created just yesterday? We struggle with details, details about our bodies that don't seem to work as we wish. So we juggle details like doctors and specialists and tests and pills. Even our children, even our children have to juggle homework and block schedules and, and piano lessons and swim practice and choir rehearsal and youth group and orthodontist appointments. And then we show up for church on Sunday. And what do we find? More details. Worship is filled with hymns and prayers, with, with sacraments and readings, with stuff to memorize and say out loud. That's why we need a bulletin, isn't it? To make sure that we get all the details right. In fact, the word liturgy, liturgy literally means the work of the people. The words, the rituals of worship, the work of the people. And oftentimes our liturgy can seem like a lot of work, can it? And we're not like some of the other traditions that, that introduce other things like standing and sitting and kneeling and liturgical calisthenics, as I like to call them. I, I went to an Episcopal, Episcopal church one time, uh, and, and I was trying to juggle all the different books. There was the prayer book and the Bible and the hymnal. And at one point, I looked to the person next to me and I said, what page are we on? I think I'm on the wrong page. And simply looked at me and she said, actually, you're in the wrong book. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe not necessarily in church, but in life that not only were you on the wrong page, but in many ways you were in the wrong book. Me too. So did you notice, did you notice how Luke described the entry into Jerusalem? There were a lot of details. We're given the exact location. It was in Jerusalem, in the suburbs of Bethpage and, and Bethany. We're given the exact place called the Mount of Olives. Jesus pulls two of his disciples aside and says to them, go into the village and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Pretty specific details. Untie it, he says, and, and bring it here. Now, obviously, Jesus has been thinking about this. He's been planning this day for a long time. He knows exactly what type of colt he wants, one that's never been ridden. He knows exactly where this colt is. He's even worked out a response to the public relations uh, problem of swiping this colt. He says, if anyone asks, you just say, the Lord needs it. Now, I find all of this a bit odd. And for me, it raises all sorts of questions. Like, for instance, why didn't Jesus just ask his disciples to find him a ride into town? No other place in all of the Gospels is there any record of him, uh, record of him ever, ever riding a donkey or riding a horse. Why didn't he just walk? He had just walked the 90 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. So why a half mile from the temple would he ask for a ride? And in particular from this specific animal, a colt 
that has never been written before. Now I want to pause for just a moment. Because in Mark and Luke's gospel, it says a colt, which is a young male. John's gospel says a young donkey. Now Matthew says a donkey and a colt with her. Even in Mark and Luke, it's believed that this colt is the colt of a donkey. Some translations call it something else. Another word for donkey that we're not supposed to say in church, one that if you force me to say will make my children giggle. So please don't make me say it. You know what word I'm talking about. Now, obviously, all of this is a symbolic act. It goes back to King David, the prototypical Jewish king. David rode a donkey, not a steed horse, but a donkey, because a donkey is more sure-footed, can travel farther on less water. It's a humble animal reflecting David's identity as a, as a shepherd king. And then from then on, all of the Davidic kings rode in to identify with David. But even more important than all of that is the story of the promise of Zechariah. 500 years, 500 years before Jesus. In Zechariah, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey. Now, everyone in the crowd on that day would have known those words. And they would have known the promise that is attached to them. So when Jesus meets up with the disciples and mounts on this donkey, they would have known what it was happening. They would know that this would be a clear signal that this, that Jesus is the one that they have been waiting for. The one promised by the prophets. Now, this story is typically read on Palm Sunday, and we know why it's called that. In some of the other uh, Gospels, he's greeted with palm branches. It's a sign of victory. But did you notice that in Luke's Gospel, in Luke's version of the story, there were no palm branches? What did the crowd do? How was he greeted in Luke's Gospel? Luke says they laid down their cloaks. As one commentary I read this week explained, it was their way of divesting themselves of symbols of their status instead of putting on the trappings of war. You see, Jesus is determined to get every detail of his arrival into town exactly right. And Luke, Luke is determined to know that, determined that we know every detail of our arrival of our king. Now, we tend to think that spirituality means not being so connected with details. We have this notion, this grand notion, that spiritual people, we think, they live simple lives. They don't worry about things like mortgages or dental appointments or going to church committee meetings. These are the type of folks, the spiritual folks, they're the ones that wear sandals and meditate and feed the birds. But that's not a biblical understanding of spirituality. You see, according to the Bible, the, the obstacle of our spiritual lives is not that we pay attention to the details of life, but that we pay too much attention to the wrong details. While Jesus is very clear about, about getting these details just right, if we look at his life, if we look at his ministry, there are a lot of details. There are a lot of details that Jesus just ignored. 
For instance, Jesus didn't worry about the detail of urgency. It seemed like he was hardly ever in a hurry. Even on his way to Jairus' home, in order to heal Jairus' daughter, there was this crisis, but yet Jesus stops along the way and heals this woman with a chronic illness. He could have hurried could have hurried by her and get to the crisis, to the critical patient, but he didn't. He was never a victim of the urgent demands of other people. But yet how many of us seem to be in a hurry all the time, running from one place to the next without taking a moment to simply be present. I think of our children who are always in a hurry to grow up and the negative consequences of a hurried childhood. So what would your life look like? What would your life look like if you just slowed down a bit? If you focused on simply being right where you are in this moment, instead of always looking ahead to where you think you need to be? Secondly, Jesus didn't worry much about the detail of effectiveness. Do you remember the parable of the sower, where the sower just sort of throws the seed anywhere and everywhere? We're told only a part of it falls on the good soil. You see, Jesus expects us to be faithful, but doesn't always demand that we be effective. We're told only God gives the increase, only only God grants the success. But yet, how often do we become paralyzed by fear? the fear of doing something wrong, of messing up. But instead, what would life look like? What would life look like if we remembered that we oftentimes learn the most when things go their worst? In those times when we don't succeed, those times when we took chances but yet failed, that it's only a failure if we don't learn from it, if we don't grow from it. I think, too, that Jesus didn't worry much about the detail of recognition. Do you remember when Martha was toiling away in the, in the kitchen while Mary simply sat and listened to Jesus? And Mary comes storming out of the kitchen, and she's wanting Jesus to recognize her for all of her hard work. And all Jesus had to do in that moment, all Jesus had to do was to give her a certificate congratulate her and thank her and just simply say, Martha, you are such a hard worker. But he never did things like that. In fact, he oftentimes, he oftentimes recognized people who remained anonymous, like the, the little old widow who gave her offering. So how much would your life be different if we stopped worrying so much about who gets the credit? about making sure that we get our due. If we were to simply pause every once in a while to, to remember that while we each have our own spiritual gifts, that we all have something to contribute to this thing that we call life, instead of competing for recognition, that if we just inspired everyone else to live their best life, to do their best work, how might the world be better? Heck, How much would your workplace be better? How much would your marriage be better if we simply stopped keeping score? And lastly, I don't think Jesus worried too much about the 
about the detail of popularity. Do you remember how, how great of a disappointment he was to all of the Pharisees who wanted him to take a harder line on sinners? How much of a disappointment he was uh, and sometimes to his own disciples, to his own followers who wanted him to be something that he was not. Most of all, he was a disappointment because he kept pointing to the detail of life in the kingdom of God and worried less about whether people liked him. He worried less about pleasing the people around him and more about pleasing God. I wonder what that might look like in your life, just as I wonder what it would look like in my life and in my ministry here at the church. You see, the details that consume us never even cross Jesus' mind. Yet, yet we so easily, we so often overlook the details that he was concerned about. Our souls oftentimes become dried out because we have tried so hard, we have tried so hard to save ourselves by controlling the wrong details. And as a result of that, we have no energy left to focus on the things that he says are important. Things like seeing the sacred in the everyday. You see, our task during the season of Lent is to take our eyes off of the things that don't matter so that we can focus more on the things that do so that we can seek the sacred, that, that we can see the sacred in the common, in the ordinary, and in the everyday. The best news of all is that once we've learned to look for Jesus there, we'll be able to see him in every detail of our lives. Amen.